0: Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. There were just two sentries on the bridge that night, marching back and forth. One of them was a private, an 18-year-old who had never seen combat before. He was making his way towards the east end of the bridge when, at 18 minutes past midnight, a single shot was fired. Then, in front of the private, 22 men emerged as if from nowhere, dressed all in camouflage, their faces blackened with an indescribable determination in their bright, white eyes. Moving quickly towards the bridge, towards the young private, the men carried submachine guns, light machine guns, and rifles at the hip, ready to fire. The Private knew in an instant that these men were highly trained, while he barely knew how to even fire his weapon. Fear gripped him, and there was no training there to kick in. All he could do was turn and run towards the other end of the bridge. As he ran, he began shouting at the 2nd Sentry, who pulled out a weapon, aiming down the bridge towards the men our young Private was running from. The Private passed him as he fired, but instantly the sound of submachine guns blasted out from behind. The 2nd Sentry, who was just a few feet from the Private, dropped dead. He continued running, screaming and shouting and warning the rest of the men who were defending the bridge. But his shouts were quickly drowned out by the sounds of explosions and more gunfire coming from the east end of the bridge. Moments later, on the west end, machine guns opened fire on the men who were now halfway across. One of those men, a 29 year old lieutenant, pulled a grenade and threw it at one of the two machine gun positions shooting at him. As he threw it though, a bullet hit him in the back of the neck and he fell to the ground. The grenade landed exactly where it was intended to, exploding and silencing that machine gun. The rest of the men successfully crossed the Beneville Bridge, but that one man, hit by the machine gun, now lay dying. His name was Den Brotheridge. He was born on the 8th of December 1915 in Staffordshire, England, and he is widely considered to be the first Allied soldier killed in action in Normandy during D-Day on June 6th, 1944, killed while crossing what has become known as Pegasus Bridge name Operation Neptune, the invasion of Normandy involved 12 allied countries throwing themselves against Hitler's Atlantic Wall. The preparations for all the different operations involved was staggering, and can at times be a little confusing. The Battle of Normandy was codenamed Operation Overlord, while the invasion itself, the opening of Overlord, was codenamed Operation Neptune. With 160,000 men landing on the beaches, the planning was crucial. At the beginning of the planning stages, the BBC held an appeal for people's holiday pictures of France to be displayed in an exhibition. Highly detailed maps of the geography of Normandy were produced from these pictures. There also needed to be topographical maps of the beaches. The British knew all too well what would happen to an army stuck on a beach when 100,000 men were killed or wounded during a failed amphibious attack against the Ottoman Empire in Gallipoli during the First World War. What was already known about the geography in Normandy was that ancient woodland underpinned some parts of the possible beaches and landing sites. This had created bogs under the surface of the beaches. It was quickly established that this left the beaches entirely unsuitable for carrying heavy vehicles like tanks and transport crafts after several tests on similar beaches in Norfolk. But that was by no means the end of the intelligence preparations. A massive operation of deception was launched, codenamed Bodyguard, and, just like in other operations at the time, it was built up of operations within operations. The deception at the heart of all of this was beautifully simple. Mislead the German defenders, make them think the invasion force was landing somewhere else and make them think that the real invasion was itself merely a diversion. The lead up to this went back as far as 1940 four years before the invasion. Thanks for the work done at Bletchley Park, the Allies were able to listen in on most German communications across Europe. This meant the Allies were easily able to see if the miscommunications they were sending out were being bought by the Germans. As well as the great advantage in communications, all of the German spies sent to Britain were captured quickly and easily. Some even turned themselves in, and the spies were quickly turned into double agents. By the time 1943 rolled around, Hitler found himself having to defend the entire European western coast. The limited, mixed and often confused German intelligence agencies simply had no idea where the invasion force would land. Their defence plan was to defend the entirety of the coastline and then rely on rapid response from armies inland to get to and reinforce the areas where the landings were taking place. For this response, the Germans deployed the 7th Army in Normandy. On July 14th 1943, the various groups involved in bodyguard collaborated and produced a paper entitled First Thoughts, which outlined many of the operations that would make up bodyguard. There had been a previous operation of deception that year, known as Cockade, that actually failed. It involved putting pressure on the Germans to try and make them believe an invasion by the Allies into Western Europe was imminent. The hope was the Germans would pull forces away from the battlefields of Sicily and the Eastern Front. With this failure hanging over bodyguard, many high commanders were sceptical that any significant deception would be achieved. Initial plans concentrated on making the Germans believe that the Allies were putting the invasion off for yet another year, but those were soon shelved for a different plan. The Germans would be expecting an invasion, no matter what their intelligence gathering was telling them. During two meetings between the Allies in November and December 1943, the final strategy for the following year was decided, and a man called Colonel John Henry Bevan, head of the London controlling station, drew up a final draft of the plans, now given the codename Bodyguard. It received final approval on Christmas Day 43. The name was chosen because of comments made by Winston Churchill to Joseph Stalin at one of those conferences. He said, quote, "In wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies." End quote. There were three main goals to the deception. First, to make the Para Calais appear to be the target of the invasion; Second, to hide the real date and time of the attack; and third, to have the Germans keep their forces at Calais, not sending them into Normandy, for at least 14 days after the invasion. Bodyguard was therefore broken down into a series of different operations. Fortitude was one such itself broken into fortitude North and fortitude South. This operation was tasked with convincing the Germans that the allies had far greater forces than they really did. To do this, they employed fictional field armies along with their fictional operations and objectives and preparations for a fictional invasion. Fortitude North revolved around the British Fourth Army. ...based in Edinburgh. Fourth Army's objectives were to invade Norway... ...and keep the German forces there occupied... ...so they would be unable to assist the forces in Calais. But there was no Fourth Army. There was no real plan to invade Norway. The army had been created back in that previous failed operation... ...but the Germans believed that the army itself was real... ...because of all the radio traffic the British had sent up... ...during another intelligence operation... ...which was backed up by fake information... ...leaked, in air quotes by German Double Agents. Fortitude South was basically the same, and we've already talked about that as it concentrated its efforts into making the Germans believe the invasion was coming to the de Calais. And Calais made a logical choice, and had many advantages over Normandy. These advantages included Calais being the shortest crossing point in the English Channel, as well as the quickest route into Germany itself. Rommel, the famous German General, had the area heavily fortified and so the misdirection by the Allies continued to concentrate its work on making the Germans believe Calais was the real target. Anyone who knows anything about the tactics of war knows you can't attack a force with far greater numbers than you, especially not a force in a defensive position. The Allies only had 37 divisions, compared to the estimated 60 of the Germans. It was crucial that any beachheads were grown into a proper front for the invasion to be successful, and with 37 divisions, that was not going to be easy. So the Allies needed every advantage they could get. Alongside all this deception, real plans were being put into place. It was quickly realised that the airborne paratroopers would be needed to help prevent a possible devastating counterattack against the men assaulting the beaches. The sheer scale of this battle means that I only really have time to concentrate on certain aspects of it. With that in mind i'm going to be talking about operation tonga and specifically operation deadstick which covers the british airborne operations for the invasion the front being opened was huge with the americans fighting in the west and the british and her commonwealth allies fighting in the east in the east the plan was to drop paratroopers between two rivers the orne and the dives the river orne flowed through Cannes to the sea and running parallel with that river between the city and the sea was the Can Canal. With the majority of the British Airborne being dropped beyond the River Orne, without control of these bridges, those men would be cut off from the rest of the Allies. The bridges would also be the place to stop any German counterattacks into the Allies' eastern flank, and prevent the Germans who were on the invasion side of the Orne from easily retreating without being caught. Fighting on this eastern flank was the 6th British Airborne Division, and this is also another part of the deception the names of the divisions this wasn't the sixth airborne division to be formed in britain nor was it the fifth fourth or third it was only the second but of course when you and more importantly the germans hear sixth airborne division you think okay where are the other five the division was only formed in 43 and so being so new it had no combat experience and in fact as late as january 1944 not even five months before the invasion, the division's general, a man named Major General Richard Gray, noted that he had, quote, no indication as yet of a definite airborne task, end quote. But finally, the plans came together. The first round of those plans didn't even involve the entire division. Instead, it called for just a single parachute brigade to be dropped behind enemy lines. The objectives of that brigade was to capture and hold two bridges that crossed the River Orne and the Cannes Canal. Now Major General Richard Gale objected strongly to the limited forces that would be used to capture those bridges and after putting on a little pressure it was agreed that the entire division would be used. Now they knew their objectives it was time to plan and train. There were three major objectives. The first was to take those two bridges The second was to destroy a heavily fortified coastal artillery battery known as the Merville Battery and to make sure it couldn't fire on the soldiers that would be landing at Sword Beach. The third and final objective was to destroy several bridges that crossed the river Dives. With the two bridges crossing the Cannes Canal and the River Orme being key targets, the General decided the only way to take them would be by a glider assault. So he asked for the best company in the division for the task ahead a task that would be called Operation Deadstick. It is at this juncture that we meet the leader of D Company, 2nd Battalion, Major John Howard, and his second-in-command, Captain Brian prade Howard was a smart man, and he expected that any invasion that involved the dropping of paratroopers would take place at night. So he changed his company's daily routine to prepare them as best he could for night fighting by having them get up at 8 o'clock in the evening and doing all of their normal exercising, drilling, training and even paperwork at night. They would then retire to sleep at 1 in the afternoon. So the company was tested by the general and it was quickly established that to complete the mission they needed more men. So Howard was told to pick two more platoons bringing the company's total to 6 or 180 men. Engineers were also brought in to dismantle any explosives found on the bridges. Three platoons would attack each bridge at the same time in order to take each one by surprise. The unit was sent to Exeter for six days of intense training on bridges that spanned the River X, bridges that were similar to the ones they would be assaulting on D-Day. Over the next few months, the training grew more and more intense, and the scale of the rehearsals got grander and grander. To give you an idea of the scale we're talking about here, on the 6th of February, one of the brigades took part in a rehearsal of a drop by 98 aircrafts. A month later, the entire division took part in an exercise that involved 284 aircraft. Then in April, an exercise called mush lasted nearly a week and utilised some 700 aircraft in which the 1st Airborne Division and a Polish Parachute Brigade were deployed against the 6th Airborne Division. As well as the ground forces training hard, the pilots were also being put through their paces. Gliders would spend hours just circling around above airfields, practising the manoeuvres they would need to perfect if they had any hope of landing the men in the right place. Once they had these manoeuvres down, just like Howard's men, they were switched to night operations to perfect the movements in the dark. That training involved using stopwatches to make sure course changes were accurate. What's remarkable about flying at this time is that there's no night vision or infrared, and radar was in its absolute infancy and was certainly not on board a glider. Though the Americans used pathfinders to set up a very rudimentary radar system to help guide in their planes, but the system had little effect on the night. There was also no GPS satellites or interactive maps to tell a pilot where he was. They were flying at night with only the light of the moon to illuminate the ground 7,000 feet below. Course changes were very specific. Three degrees left after exactly 117 seconds, for example. Every little detail had to be calculated, including working out the airspeed of a wooden box with no engine throughout its whole journey from the moment it detached from its tow to when it lands. And then variables needed to be taken into account, like wind speed and direction. By the end of May, the pilots had carried out 54 training flights, which covered both day, night, and all weather conditions. The pilots were as ready as they were ever going to be. In all, six horse gliders would be used to transport the men of Operation Deadstick. The horses were transports that could glide in silently and land right on top of an enemy position without being seen or heard. To get these gliders in the air, they had to be towed by Halifax bombers just like boats are towed along canals and rivers. They would be brought up to around 7,000 feet before the tow is disconnected and the glider begins its long descent back to the ground. When it came to landing, there were no second chances. Across the channel, the bridges were defended by around 50 men from the 736th Grenadier Regiment. The rest of who were based in Ranville, more than a mile from the bridges. The regiment was part of the 716th infantry division a unit who was assigned to defend 21 miles of the atlantic wall filled with conscripts they were badly equipped and armed with a mixture of german and foreign weapons those conscripts came from across the german occupied territories like poland russia and france but they were led by german officers and non-commissioned officers Non-commissioned officers, also known as NCOs or non-coms, are the backbone of a modern army, and they are the leaders that the majority of the infantry will take their orders from. A lot of NCOs will have gotten to their position at this point in the war through proving themselves in combat as good leaders. Another problem for the 736th was their commanding officer, a major called Hans Schmidt, was not an ideal officer. When he's compared to the commanding officers of other German units, he doesn't stand up well one of those other units was the 125th panzer grenadier regiment led by colonel hans von luck and part of the 21st panzer division while schmidt was busy reassuring himself that everything would be all right if the expected invasion did come to normandy von luck was busy drilling his men in defensive tactics and while schmidt spent his time getting drunk in ranville von luck was out identifying possible incursion points the allies might use as well as marking out routes that his men and armour would take to get to those points, including where would be the best place to rest and refuel, and even making careful note of the locations of anti-aircraft weapon positions. Schmidt had orders to blow the bridges up if he thought they were going to fall into enemy hands. He believed that should the invasion indeed come to Normandy, and should he need to defend his bridges, he would have plenty of warning they were 5 miles inland and if there were any airborne operations it would take them time to regroup and organize themselves before they could assault a bridge a stick of paratroopers lands very spread out and it does indeed take time for them to form up the line of paratroopers in a plane would obviously drop one after another but that plane would be flying at around 100 miles an hour and hopefully though sadly not always no faster than 110 miles an hour how much time passes between each jump So how much space is there between each of the troopers? And how much space is there between the first jumper and the last jumper? And how easy is it going to be to get the stick back together at night with no lights but a full moon? Schmidt knew all of this, and he had told himself that should there be any paratroopers landing, his unit would be able to reach the bridges just over a mile away, more quickly than any paratroopers. He also didn't keep his bridges on full alert. Instead, just two sentries on each bridge were posted, while the rest of the men slept in their slit trenches and bunkers that surrounded them. The 21st Panzer Division was a very different formation from the 716th Infantry. It had actually been effectively destroyed in North Africa back in 1943, but now it had been rebuilt by Rommel here in Normandy. The division was designed to be as mobile as possible, so they could get to an invasion point as fast as possible. But with the war in the East taking its toll, German manufacturing couldn't build and supply for all the units it wanted. Enough vehicles were provided to put together a fully operational brigade that was named Schnell Brigade West, though many of these vehicles were captured French half-tracks and light tanks. These were all upgraded with better armour and more powerful weapons, but little in the way of new vehicles was supplied to make any new units. So Schnell Brigade West was renamed Schnell Division West, and 10 days later was renamed again. This time it was called the 21st Panzer Division. As you can imagine, simply naming a unit the size of brigade a division does not make it more formidable, but the Allies weren't to know that. Even though it was undersized and equipped with older vehicles, the officers throughout the division were veterans of its previous incarnation, men with a great deal of experience and hardened by combat. As well as the officers, there were 2,000 veterans filling the division's ranks now let's take a minute to talk about the bridges and try and paint a picture of the area remember the river and the canal run parallel to each other about 500 meters apart they run roughly north to south with two bridges spanning east to west the canal is in the west while the river is in the east a main road runs both across and between the two bridges the canal bridge was 58 meters long and just under four meters wide and could be raised up to allow traffic to move underneath The controls for this were in a nearby cabin. On the west side of the canal was the Commune of Benneville, an English equivalent of a parish or a very small town or village, and overlooking the canal from that commune, very close to the bank, was the Café Gondre, owned by the Gondres. The river bridge was bigger, 110 metres long and just over 6 metres wide. Other than a few small buildings dotted around, the area was very rural, made up of open fields. On June 2nd, George Gondre and his wife Teresa sent out their final piece of information to the Allies back in Britain about the canal bridge. They had been doing this for a while now, and they would gotten away with it because there were three things the Germans didn't know about them. First, the Gondres, despite their polite and friendly demeanor, hated the Germans. Second, Teresa could speak German, and third, George could speak English. So Teresa would listen in on the Germans talking as they drank at a cafe, and then pass the information on to her husband. He then passed it on to a director at a local hospital, who would then take it with her on trips to Cannes when she went to collect supplies. In Cannes, she would give the information to the French resistance, and from Cannes, it went on to England. That information that was passed on June 2nd was the location of the trigger for the explosives attached to the bridge. It was in one of the machine gun pillboxes. one opposite the anti-tank weapon at both bridges there were formidable defences in place at the canal bridge on the west bank there were three machine gun emplacements while on the east bank there was one machine gun emplacement and one anti-tank gun to the north of these were three more machine guns and a concrete pillbox to the south there was an anti-aircraft tower that was fitted with more machine guns At the river bridge, there was a pillbox with anti-tank and anti-aircraft guns on the southern flank of the eastern bank. To the north of the bridge were two machine gun emplacements. Along the banks on both bridges were sandbag trenches. On the 5th of June 1944, at 2256, six gliders towed by Halifax bombers took off from RAF Tarrant Rushton. Horse number 1, the leading horser, carried Major Howard with Lieutenant Brotheridge's platoon. Horsa number 2 carried Lieutenant Woods' platoon, while number 3 carried Lieutenant Smith's platoon. The other three were going to the River Bridge. Captain Priday was with Lieutenant Hooper's platoon in Horsa number 4, number 5 bore Lieutenant Fox's platoon, and Horsa number 6 had Lieutenant Sweeney's platoon. Five men from the Royal Engineers' platoon were also assigned to each glider to deal with the explosives on the bridges. There was also a mortar in each glider. At seven minutes past midnight, now June 6th, the bombers had crossed the Normandy coast. At 7,000 feet up, they released the gliders. In horse number one, Staff Sergeant Warwick was at the controls, struggling to slow it down quickly enough. They were getting closer and closer to the bridge, and closer and closer to the ground. To slow them down, he needed to release the parachute, but they were dangerous. Timing for its release was also critical too early and they'll be brought down well short of their target landing zone. He wanted to get them as close to the landing zone as possible, later stating it was, quote, not because Howard wanted me to, not because I was particularly brave or awfully skilled, but because I didn't want to be rear-rammed by number two or number three coming in behind me, end quote. The chute was released as the wheels hit the ground, forcing the front end of the glider down into the ground and bouncing the whole thing back into the air. All of its landing gear broke off, but the chute did what it was designed to do, and the speed dropped dramatically. The chute was then jettisoned before the glider hit the ground again, and when it did, they slid over stones and rocks that threw up sparks that many of the men mistook for traces, believing they were being shot at. The glider came to a sudden, crashing halt, which threw Warwick and his co-pilot through the front of the glider. Both were still strapped in their seats, and both were now unconscious. But they weren't the only men unconscious, as so were all the other men inside the glider. On the bridge, the sentries had heard the crash, but thought nothing of it. Loud crashing sounds were common as bombers routinely flew over Normandy. Those that were shot down tended to break apart in the air before landing. So the company had achieved one of its main objectives, complete tactical surprise. It took just a few seconds for the men to regain consciousness. All the training and preparation, their fitness and readiness proved its worth as they shook their collective heads and began unbuckling their belts. Just as they practised, the platoon exited the glider, with Howard following behind. The canal ridge loomed over them. The pilots had managed to land them exactly where they were supposed to, and not a single shot had been fired. The landing zone was just metres from the bridge, on the southeast side, so that's the strip of land between the two bridges. No words were spoken as the men began forming up along the perimeter of the bridge's defence. Only a minute had passed since Horser Number 1 landed, and just as the men of the 1st platoon began to make their move, Horser Number 2 landed, breaking apart just behind the 1st crash glider. Lieutenant Wood was thrown out of the glider, but he was okay. His men climbed out and assembled around him. Suddenly, a shot was fired as 2nd platoon moved up to meet with 1st platoon on the perimeter. The Germans were now alerted to their presence, and Howard ordered Woods to clear out the trenches on the northeast side, where the shot had come from. Without hesitation, the platoon ran across the road to the trenches. That's when glider number three came down. It landed exactly the same way as number one had, but came to a rest on its side. Several men were thrown out of this glider too. One was a lance corporal called Friend Greenhow, who landed in a nearby pond. With all the weight of his equipment, he couldn't swim and drowned in the waters. Many of the men in glider number three were trapped. Back at the canal bridge it was 18 minutes past midnight and Brotheridge was leading his men across. He shot and killed a sentry who fired a flare, while Woods' platoon cleared out the trenches with Sten guns and grenades. The men defending the bridge were mostly conscripts. Now as the sounds of war were ringing out they began to back away from their weapons and positions. But the German officers got straight to work. Brotheridge and his men were nearly across the bridge when the machine guns finally began to shoot at him. He was close enough to toss a grenade at the position but just as he let go, he was hit by a bullet, dropping him. The grenade exploded, killing the Germans manning the machine gun, and the rest of the platoon crossed the bridge, and using grenades and sten guns, took out the second machine gun position. By now, the engineers were at the bridges, preparing to dismantle the explosives. But they found that even though the Germans had wired the bridges to blow, there were no explosives in the chambers. It turned out Schmidt was worried about French partisans, and even accidents by his own men. So he hadn't Had the explosives fitted? Now across the bridge, Private Billy Gray began exchanging fire with a German sergeant. Gray was armed with a Bren light machine gun. If you don't know what a light machine gun is, don't let the name fool you. A light machine gun is a powerful weapon designed to be portable, so it doesn't have a need to be set up like the famous German MG42. The sergeant he was exchanging fire with was Hickman, armed with a German Schmeizel submachine gun. Both men were shooting from the hip, meaning they were not properly aiming their weapons. In short range, this doesn't matter, but they were not close enough to each other, so both men put a full clip above the other's head. Gray broke off. There were other men around him, and Hickman was now shooting at the bridge, not aiming at any specific target. Gray moved into a nearby barn, and I just love this, puts his gun down, stopping everything in the middle of his firefight, so he could pee. Lieutenant Smith... Leader of third platoon was now also crossing the bridge, and as he got to the other side, he saw a German throwing a grenade at him. Smith fired his stem, killing the German, but the grenade went off right in front of him. Though he didn't feel anything, another man ran up to him, asking him if he was okay. Looking down, Smith could see his trousers had holes in them, as well as his bow smock. Then he noticed his wrist; all the flesh had been torn away, leaving nothing but bone. Apparently, his first thought on seeing the wound was quote, "Christ, no more cricket." End quote. Somewhat amazingly, his trigger finger still worked. To give you an idea of just how unprepared some of the German soldiers were for this fight, and how poorly they had been trained and readied, two of them were busy in a brothel in Benneville when they heard the first shots. They laced up their boots, buttoned their shirts, and pulled up their trousers before running towards the bridge. But when they saw the firefight, they instantly turned around and ran for Cannes. It didn't take long for them to run out of breath, so they stopped, and tried to work out what they were going to do. They decided to shoot off all their ammunition, then go back to Beneville, where they reported that the British were on the bridge, and the two German soldiers had engaged them, but they had expended all their ammunition before returning to Beneville to report the situation. And all of this was just the canal bridge. At 20 minutes past midnight, Horser number 5, carrying Fox's platoon, landed just 300 metres from the river bridge in that platoon was sergeant thornton who fox described as a remarkable man the platoon formed up and began moving towards the bridge but a machine gun opened fire and forced them all to drop down almost straight away a mortar landed on the machine gun firing at the unit destroying it and killing the operators then the platoon stormed the bridge shouting easy 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 code words so any british who had already taken the bridge would know it was friendlies coming towards them there was no opposition The sentries and any other men defending it ran off after the mortar had taken out the first machine gun. Thornton was already seeing to setting up their own defences. Two minutes later and Sweeney's glider was on the ground after a smooth landing, but they were short. They ran towards the bridge, which also gave no opposition, and as they crossed began shouting, ''Fox! Fox! Fox!'' to which the first platoon replied with, ''Easy! Easy! Easy!'' Back on the canal bridge, most of the resistance had ended, with the Germans having been killed or run off. The next task was to clear out the bunkers. One man, Sandy Smith, later recalled, quote, The poor buggers in the bunkers didn't have much of a chance, and we were not taking any prisoners or messing around. We just threw phosphorus grenades down and high explosive grenades into the dugouts there, and anything that moved we shot, end quote. With the last of the German defenders beaten, the next thing they had to do was rally on the cafe, where Brotheridge was supposed to set up a command post and defensive firing positions. But he wasn't there, and no one had seen him. Eventually, a private Parr found him on the bridge. On finding him, Parr later said, quote, I looked at him, and it was Danny Brotheridge. His eyes were open, and his lips were moving. I put my hand under his head to lift him up. He just looked. His eyes sort of rolled back. He just choked and laid back. My hand was covered in blood. I looked at him and thought, My God. Right in the middle of that thing, I just knelt there and looked at him and thought, What a waste. All those years of training we put into this job. It lasted only seconds, and he lay there, and I thought, What a waste. End quote. On the other side of the bridge, Woods was clearing out the last of the trenches. When they were clear, he found an intact MG-34 with a full belt of ammunition. His men filled the trenches, and the attackers now became the defenders. He left his men there to meet Howard and give him an update when a sudden burst from a German submachine gun went off and three bullets hit Woods in the leg. At the canal bridge, all three platoon leaders were out of action, having been wounded or killed. Major Howard had now set up his command post in the trenches along the eastern bank of the canal. The first bit of news he received was that of Brotheridge's death. At the river bridge, a small group of men, just four, were moving to the bridge. The soldiers in the section along the bank called out, V! The response was not for victory, and the voice was German. So the entire section opened fire, killing all four men. Eventually, good news started making its way towards Howard. First he heard there were no explosives on the bridge. Then he could see the very last of the fighting on the canal bridge was over. He and his men had captured it, intact, with just two casualties. Then a message came through from Sweeney at the river bridge. It said, We've captured the bridge without firing a shot, end quote. And over at the river bridge, there were still only two of the three platoons. Unknown to any of them at the time, Howard's second-in-command, Captain Priday, in horse number four, had landed some 20 kilometres away on the wrong river. But with that last message, Howard was able to order that the code words ham and jam be transmitted, meaning that both bridges had been captured intact. About 30 minutes later, at about 10 to 1, The 6th Airborne Division appeared overhead and the paratroopers began landing at their drop zones. Howard began using Morse code to help guide the men to the bridges. Two minutes later, and the men on the Canal Bridge could hear tanks and other vehicles in Benneville. And do you remember Schmidt? He and two other men travelled in a light-armoured half-track and a motorbike to the bridge. The British opened fire on them as they reached the bridges, and the German commander, tasked with defending and now counterattacking the bridges, had been captured. By half past one in the morning, it was clear the invasion was on, but the only man who had authority to move the various tank units for a counterattack was Adolf Hitler himself. His aides refused to wake him. At 2am, 2nd Battalion, 192nd Panzer Grenadier Regiment, based in Chiron, was ordered to retake the bridges from the west. They would be supported by the 1st Panzerjäger Company, and part of the 989th Heavy Artillery Battalion coming from the north. But Howard's men were waiting for them. As the first tanks rolled up the road towards the bridge, the lead vehicle was hit by a Piet anti-tank weapon and exploded. It was the British's only serviceable anti-tank weapon, but it scared the other Germans, who quickly withdrew. Through the night, more and more paratroopers arrived to help defend the bridges, and D Company were pulled off the front line into the area between the two bridges. They sat in reserve. But more Germans were on the way, and at 3am, a a bigger counterattack began. The Germans used 75mm SP guns, which were basically a kind of tank destroyer, and mortars, along with other heavy weapons. They drove the British paratroopers out of Beneville, but they couldn't break the British lines at the bridge. Just before sunrise, Howard summoned his platoon commanders to a meeting. They now faced the problem that in daylight, German snipers could easily identify targets, and anyone moving in the open was in danger of being shot so the 75 millimeter anti-tank gun on the east bank of the canal was used to engage possible sniper positions in Beneville and the surrounding areas. During the night, more German weapons were found, and at 9am, two German gunboats came up the canal towards the bridge. One of the boats fired a 20 millimetre gun, but 2nd platoon returned fire with another Piat. They scored a direct hit on the wheelhouse of the leading boat, causing it to crash into the canal bank. The 2nd boat turned around and retreated. At 10am, a a single German aircraft dropped a single bomb at the bridge and actually managed to hit it, but the bomb failed to explode. The Germans in Beneville continued to attack the bridges, now they had 17 tanks to try and break through. As the lead tank made its way up the main road towards the bridge, it was destroyed by a gammon bomb and was left blocking the road, preventing other tanks from getting through. In the end, of the 17 tanks used, 13 were destroyed. As the attack failed to break through, the men on the bridges were reinforced by D Company's 1st platoon, who then pushed into Benneville and engaged the Germans in fierce house-to-house fighting. Eventually, all the Germans were cleared from the town, and the men of D Company were again pulled back to the area between the two bridges. Through the day, more and more paratroopers, and eventually even commandos, arrived to defend the bridge. The German counter-attack, with units including those of von Luck who couldn't move at night because Hitler was still sleeping, were now easily spotted by the dominant Allied air power and artillery. The armour moving towards the bridges and beaches were torn apart before they even reached their objectives. The bridges were held, and the eastern flank of the invasion was protected. The British airborne landing succeeded as well as the wider invasion. Before being withdrawn from the front line on the 16th of July, Major Howard was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, presented in the field by General Bernard Montgomery himself. Other men also received medals for their services. Lieutenant Smith and Sweeney were awarded the Military Cross, while Sergeant Thornton and Lance Corporal Stacy were awarded the Military Medal. The pilots were also recognised. Air Chief Marshal trafford Le Mallory of the Royal Air Force described the accomplishments of the pilots as the, quote, most outstanding flying achievement of the war, end quote. Eight of the glider pilots received the Distinguished Flying Medal Award. Of D Company, only two men were killed and 14 wounded. Of the paratroopers who followed and helped defend the bridges, 18 were killed and 36 wounded. The German casualties aren't no, but they did lose 14 tanks and a gunboat. All the efforts put into the deception before the invasion worked out. It wasn't until August that the Germans finally realised there wasn't a second invasion coming to Calais. That had given the Allies a real chance to get a good, strong foothold in France. The invasion of Normandy saw 156,000 men on the Allies' side, with around 10,000 men on the German side. The Allies suffered at least 12,000 casualties, while the Germans may have lost up to 9,000 of those 10,000 men. Well, these numbers sound like a lot. To put this in the perspective of the war as a whole, two weeks after D-Day, on the Eastern Front, the Russians launched Operation Bagration. Bagration saw the Russians fielding some 2.3 million infantry, nearly 80,000 poles, just under 3,000 tanks and a little more than 5,000 aircraft. The German strength was nearly 500,000 frontline men and 400,000 support and non-combat personnel. They had just 118 tanks and 600 aircraft. At the end of the operation, the number of dead on all sides are even in modern times, difficult to know. The averages of the sources seem to be between 530,000 and 580,000 men dead or wounded. By now, the Germans were beaten, but they weren't going to give up, and it would be a long, bloody fight to Berlin.